Hello again and welcome to another episode of Voices from SA. My name is Nicholas Claude. Thanks for joining me wherever you are. I hope you are keeping well. This week, due to unforeseen circumstances, I'm replaying an interview I had with uh, Ronnie Casrals. Uh, we spoke about a year ago, a little over a year ago. Um, he's a founder member of the armed wing of uh, the ANCM, Quanto Asizwe, as a former government minister. Today he's an author and activist, um, and uh, he actually, on the 14th of May, has an article published in the Daily Maverick uh, where he writes about the recent South African election, an article called A Curate's Egg of an Election, where he comments on the low turnout in uh, in this election, the lowest turnout um, since 1994, the low youth voter registration, the high number of spoiled ballot papers, and so what, what this means, and I'll, I'll put a link uh, to this article on the Audio Boom page. I thought it would be sort of interesting in the light of the current state of the ANC and sort of hopefully some of its reflection on the some of these election statistics, just to get a sense from one of the organization's stalwart members been involved in the struggle for freedom in this country since the 1950s, uh, just to give you a sense of, you know, what that struggle was about and put sort of the ANC of today in some kind of context. So uh, please enjoy my interview with Ronnie. Ronnie, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Pleasure. I know you're also running around these days. Yeah, as we all are. In the crazy times we live. Um, I have to say, I'll start with the fact that you knew my dad in Durban when you were both members of the Congress of Democrats. Yes, new members, 1960, just after Sharpville. I'm a Joburg boy. Yes. And I was working up here in um, for a film studio and then transferred to a better paid job in Durban. Oh my goodness, I didn't know those existed ever. <laughs> uh, well, it was because I joined Lever Brothers Film Division. Oh wow. And Lever Brothers could pay twice what I was being paid here. Huh. So I can't say it was for idealistic reasons except to say... I had already been in Durban at the time or just after Sharpville on holiday. And Roly Orenstein was central to this, this people's lawyer, communist. Uh, I met Dennis Claude through him. And there was this small circle of young white students Right. who gathered around his feet <laughs> hmm. and so, listened to Rowley's analysis and explanation about the struggle, both nationally and internationally. We were really drawn to him. So he was obviously quite a charismatic person. I mean, my dad used to speak to, to, to us a lot about Rowley Orenstein, um, but were you a were you a communist? Did you call your did you identify as a communist then, or were you just a, somebody who had who's in who had been kind of sparked by the the events of Sharpville in particular, or had you always been a little? Were you conscientized, if I could ask you that? Yeah, I I became conscientized. I was shocked by Sharpville, but I was a callow youth just in my early 20s, your father, three years or so older than me, which in those days was meant seniority. <laughs> um, but I was a bit of a rebel at school. We, If I go into that, then we take up too much time. But I hated racism. I, it absolutely, I was revolted by what I saw happening. I happened to have been fortunate to have a mother who was very kind-hearted. And there was a Jewish background. So I came out of the the horrors of the war years. They were immigrants in South Africa, though. Uh, and that obviously sensitized me to the horrible prejudices rampant in white society and uh, the brutality of the state. Um, and therefore, when Sharpville occurred, it had found me just having left school, beginning to work, 
and um, gravitating towards liberal-minded whites, some who I thought seemed to be communists up in Joburg, and the African people and people from minority race groups, Khaled, Indian. Uh, what drew me initially was culture, music, poetry, mm-hmm. uh, and um, such like. But Sharpville then hit me so hard that I felt I had to do something. And um, at that point, I was living and working in Joburg, but went to Durban in search of Rowley and his wife, who was my blood cousin. Uh And I knew they were communists, so I wasn't frightened off by this this, um, horror of, of the communist image. I was actually attracted. And what did I know about it? It was basically reading novels, um, Hemingway-esque novels, For Whom the Bell Tolls, and so on. Not so much into the theory. So you hadn't gotten to the theory of the... But some of these humanistic novels, Steinbeck and so on, um, and it was those those humanistic novels about the downtrodden, uh, French, Russian, Gorky, and so on. Um, And... Meeting up with Rowley and the circle that he already had created, like Dennis Claude, a few other characters, Melville Fletcher, a trade unionist, um, um, uh, Graham Meidlinger, who was more Rowley's age. Uh, how old, a, how old was he at this stage, Rowley? At that Einstein. stage, he was 40-ish or oh, okay, so. so you know, he we was... were 20-year-olds, right. and Rowley was kind of into his mid-40s. Uh, the Shanley family, who were communists like the Orensteins, but banned, the Communist Party was banned, and we went, we didn't run in the opposite direction. Uh, you know, there were liberal groups um, around Alan Payton, also very minuscule. These were a minority mm. of whites, not even 1%. Uh, the Congress of Democrats was even less. Uh, because a lot of the white liberals were frightened off by the Congress of Democrats, which was formed after the Communist Party's banning, not as a front for communism, but as a group of white Democrats supporting the Freedom Charter and the ANC. Um, It was very attractive because we crossed the colour line in political terms, and it wasn't just Rowley, but he stood out in terms of learning about the Congress movement, the struggle, the Communist Party, um, how apartheid, what apartheid was serving, capitalism, the international situation, Soviet Union, Cuba, Mm. Israel. You know, we had, these were questions Mm. which a guy like Rowley could answer, not in a dogmatic way, but in a effortless way, Mm. which made such sense, it made sense to people who saw through their gut, like we did, that apartheid was evil and unjust. And then you had to say, okay, so this is racism. But the Marxism then explained the class aspect. And let me say this, that we then came to see um, that South Africa's cleavages multiple but two key cleavages was race and class. Obviously when I say others there's the gender cleavage, ethnic cleavages and divides, but the two clear divides, race and class. And on the surface of course everything seemed to emanate out of the colour issue. But when you came to analyse what that was serving, the brilliance of Marxists Mick Harmel in Johannesburg, um, Jake Simons in Cape Town, but African communists too, uh, Duma Nokwe, for example, who I knew, uh, Steve Dlamini in Durban, Billy Nyer, MP Nyker, people in Durban, that you came to realise what created the divisions within society and the conflicts uh, and that's then the class analysis and uh, how apartheid served the interests of um, capital.
Um, how was that struggle then seen to be, or how did you perceive then how that struggle was going to be waged if we're talking sort of pre-armed struggle days and certainly um, I would imagine pre any sort of concrete relationship between the ANC and the South African Communist Party. Um, what was the, the view then of how the struggle was going to be waged? Was it going to be a worker's struggle waged through trade unions or the ongoing mass protest movement that had come out of the anti-pass laws? How, what were you sort of discussing at that time when it came to struggle? Well, you see then the brilliance of the Marxist analysis and the experience of, on the one hand, the Communist Party, which of course is banned in 1950, uh, but is underground when Dennis and I come on the scene in 1960, um, and the ANC, which is the other strand now. So let me just put it into that context I've dealt with, um, to see that the Communist Party and labor unions, workers' struggle, comes out of the whole cleavage between, between employer-employee, between capital and labor. So that class struggle, which uh, is a very dramatic one in South Africa. Initially, white workers being the central crux of the proletariat, but later, by the 20s, the black proletariat of being absorbed into industry and so on. Um, so the Communist Party is representing the class struggle and is creating unions and so on. The African National Congress is representing the national aspirations of the black people. So this is a reflection of the race divide and racist exclusion. So the ANC then is coming out of the national struggle, and I put then with that stroke the race, the struggle against race domination for equality. In the course of the struggle over the 20th century, uh, up to 1960, these two strands of struggle come closer to closer and closer together and learn from each other uh, and, and absorb each other to some degree. So the communists come to understand and appreciate, which perhaps in other countries didn't occur so dramatically as in South Africa, and explains why communists in South Africa originally white, but over that century and up to 1960, attracting more and more black workers, rural and urban, who then become leaders as well. Moses Katani, Duma Nokwe, J.B. Marx, Alex Laguma, uh, Steve Domini, and so on. Um, and you then have the nationalists from the ANC being influenced to socialism and accepting the communists and vice versa. And this percolates or synthesizes into an alliance which uh, is reflected in the Congress Alliance and the Freedom Charter as the future, which is a semi-socialist document. But in a sense, what has happened is that there is tremendous respect for each other. Early on, even up to nine, the 1940s, communists like Joe Slova and others had suspicion, not just of Mandela, who was rather anti-communist, as we know, but Walter Sisulu, and felt they were too nationalistic and therefore there was the race factor, and vice versa, as Mandela, more than others, showed a suspicion of communists and thinking this comes from Europe and it's mainly whites and they dominate. But through practical experience, the um, suspicions, the distrust fall aside and you've got this building of trust and confidence. So by the time I'm on the scene in 1960, there's a fusion. It's not as though it's one group. They're still distinct, but they are allies, not just on a narrow minimalist program, much more than that. Freedom Charter is not minimalist. It's a major commitment and vision to a South Africa which would be revolutionized. 
this in terms of your question about methods of struggle, in this early period up to Sharpeville, probably influenced on the one hand by the rather dominant or influential Indian congresses of Natal and the old Transvaal, this idea of non-violence of the Gandhi type was very appealing to black nationalism, uh, where you saw the incredible power and resources of white domination, its military, its police, its weaponry, its monopoly of violence, etc. And until you could build up a, a, a critical mass and a radicalized mass, you weren't going to really dent that power that they had, but you could see through non-violence the possibility of taking advantage of that space of mass and mobilization. building up this critical mass through the mobilization. The trade unions were part of it, but also in terms of building up a mass base. This, of course, is the labor base, and um, this is in Lenin's term, you know, the school of communism, but it's also an absolute font and, and, and factor for national liberation. The trade unionists of the Congress at the time, which was SACTU, South African Congress of Trade Unions, tended to be more leftist than the, the average ANC member who might not have been a unionist member, and more particularly those at more of a leadership level who were petty bourgeois, who were shop owners, uh, although there wasn't much scope for that if you were an African, but some in the townships. And then, of course, lawyers and the few doctors and teachers, um, which is a class grouping, sort of uh, upwardly mobile, that exhibited more of the consciousness for straight national struggle. Um, there were some tensions, but not oh, very great at that time. I'm mentioning it now because I know you're going to, at the end, want to come to about the ANC today, where those tensions are more marked. So let me just say that up to Sharpeville, there was this view that we could make change through nonviolence. What Sharpeville ended was uh, the, f the belief that that was possible. And the idea then that there was no other choice, as Mandela expounded and others, and as exemplified in the Manifesto of Mkonto Rusizwe, which was created in, the 19 in 1961 and is, uh, is born in 19... December of that year in its initial phase of sabotage action is um, there is no other choice either to submit or to fight. Um, so that's the change that takes place. That and there were arguments about it. Uh, the leadership had had long discussions which somebody like myself was not aware of. I'm new, we're young, we're in the Congress of Democrats. And it's by mid-1961 I was recruited into Mkonto Rusizwe and wasn't too aware of the sharpness of the debate until we carried out our first acts of sabotage at the end of that year. And I then found that Roly Orenstein, who was my mentor, and I was actually living in his house with my cousin, his wife, Jacqueline, um that he was vehemently opposed and felt it was dangerous and adventuristic and uh, it, it would mean a big divide would open up between the movement and the masses hmm. uh, because sabotage was something for an elite few. Uh, he had some points there. I think the point that was probably most important was that so many of those with um, the energy 
and experience because there were older people involved like uh, Mandela himself, like um, in, in Durban, Billy Nyer and so on, would be distracted from building a mass movement, from developing the trade union front and would run the risk of capture and imprisonment, which in fact did happen. So for quite a time, with the state hitting back viciously, they saw the danger of black people, yes, some whites amongst us, but basically a black movement taking up Armed weapons movement. and challenging their monopoly of violence that this frightened the hell out of them. So, of course, they passed very repressive legislation and for a, quite a time were on top because the movement was decimated. It was actually crushed by the, um, the legislation, the detentions that took place. They didn't need uh, to, to charge you. There was incredible interrogation that took place and torture, people dying in detention, people being sentenced in kangaroo trials to, to huge lengths of imprisonment, massive intimidation uh, amongst the people in the country. The movement crushed. The underground that was forming at that time crushed. And those who managed to survive were actually into exile, where we came up with an alternative form of mass struggle uh, to try and, uh, and and claw back what we had lost. And essentially, that was an underground within the country that could direct mass struggle. We never gave up on that, but would also be able to absorb people who had been sent out for training many, many hundreds of them, a couple of thousand in fact, to receive them back in the country. And they were then supposed to link with the underground, but this was now smashed. And those who were trained, like myself, uh, as far afield as Dar es Salaam, later Lusaka, but for a decade and a half, up until the mid-70s, the student uprising and the workers' strikes, Durban 1972 and elsewhere, um, for a, a decade and more, the movement really was set back. Mm. And as a result, the struggle was blunted tremendously. And it's only through those workers' strikes and the student uprising that we gained in the recruitment we needed in our training cramp camps that we'd set up abroad and could return into the theatre of struggle and... Um, and through our armed actions, which were quite few in 1976 period to 1985 or six a year, but they made a big impact. Black people with guns suddenly appearing, taking on the police, firing rockets into police stations and at the military. Um, this aroused the people tremendously. We thought that we were the impetus, but in actual fact, the contradictions within the system itself of apartheid were already creating alternative methods and forms of struggle uh, and focal points. So you had white students and black students, for instance, in their various organisations, uh, black consciousness movements and, and the new cess radicalisation, etc., the workers' uh, study groups, um, wages commissions in Durban, of a new brand of young whites who were connected to Rick Turner and even Roly Orenstein. But the wave of strikes, and then through, through Black Consciousness Movement, BICO and others, a ripple of resistance amongst black intellectuals and students, but um, a galvanization of mass struggle, which gave birth in the 80s to the new trade union in 83 Kasatu, and, of course, the United Democratic Front and the mass democratic movement, which then made it easier for MK to operate within the country. And um, the, the, the regime more and more was pinned into a corner. They struck out wildly, both inside the country where people were killed by the assassin squads, uh, etc. And they hit back at ANC presence in places like Lesotho, uh, Maseru, Matolo in Mozambique, 
um, Gaborone, Botswana, uh, the attacks on Angola and Zimbabwe, the hit squad period, you know, very repressive, dirty war that they fought. But Africa was on our side as a country and the ANC actually, and we began to see the changes from 1975, the collapse of Portuguese colonialism, emergence of Frelimo in Mozambique, MPLA in Angola, Zimbabwe's freedom in 1980, the um, defeat of the SADF in Angola because of the Cubans coming to the, to the support of the MPLA, both in 75 when the South Africans with internal bandit forces like UNITA threatened to prevent the MPLA coming to power, but particularly in the, the late 80s, uh, at Quito, Carnival, etc., where the Cubans again came to the rescue, defeated the South African Defence Force, forced them back into, in, into Namibia, and the negotiations there, which gave rise to independence for Namibia, and the knock-on effect into South Africa. So by 1990, the struggle, it, as, and I'll repeat this, I think from outside we, we felt that MK uh, had achieved far more through MK than what the trade unions and the mass democratic movement had. But, and people underestimate MK's um, contribution to this day. A lot of acad certain academics, let me say, um, put across the idea that, well, MK was irrelevant. It's not true. There was this factor of giving people tremendous inspiration and hitting the regime psychologically denting their confidence and that of the white community. So in the end, with all of these things, plus the international boycott and the sanctions against South Africa began to change the whole relationship in this country and led to, in actual fact, in the political sphere, the National Party under de Klerk saying, OK, we prepared to see about the change, change in the politics of this country will give in and accept universal franchise, which meant majority rule for black people who saw the ANC as their organisation in 1994 and Mandela as the leader. That was a short history of the liberation struggle of <laughs> South Africa. <laughs> um, thanks, Ronnie. Um, you said the movement was essentially crushed. How did you, in exile, maintain any kind of positivity uh, in those years, if we're talking sort of from 1965 to 75, perhaps? Uh, wh wh how do you, as an organization, maintain cohesion and maintain a, a kind of direction? I think in the first place... Um it was because there was obviously a lot of not only oppression internally in South Africa, but there were spies and informers and things like that to deal with as well. So there must have been a high degree of paranoia coupled with um, just a, a stress and tension of, of staying alive. I think, you know, incredibly difficult circumstance. Um, but it was almost an article of faith the belief that we would survive and we would win through and that apartheid could not, could not remain in place. Um, now, I say an article of faith, that's as though we just believed in some invisible hand. I'm saying it's akin to an article of faith that we would win, but that's based in the reality of South Africa. In what we knew through our own experience and the history of the country and the struggle that um, there was this major divide between a white racist domination of a minority um, which could not survive the awakening of the African giant in South Africa uh, the contradictions of apartheid, which meant that any black person, including the uh, minority group of Indian and mixed race, uh, 
through this repression would not just understand and be aware of their place in society, but because of the advanced understanding and consciousness uh, and awareness which had come through long years of struggle and of course through the industrialization process in South Africa which had produced an economy, which had produced uh, a working class and its awareness and that this created that burning consciousness that things were wrong. So we had the moral high ground and everything the, the regime did was to isolate it further and to create more recruits for the struggle through their brutality. So we had that belief that apartheid was rotten, was wrong, was evil that could not survive and that we were getting stronger, our people were all the time. We could see that Africa was freeing itself of its chains, and we were getting that support. And we could see that internationally, colonialism and a new form of colonial empire domination out of, say, America, uh, United States, in Vietnam and Latin America and the Cuba situation, um, that that was failing. So we saw history on our side and the newly liberated countries from Tanzania to Zambia, uh, Algeria, and then Angola, Mozambique, Zimbabwe, that gave us renewed strength. And we realized that we were on the right side of history, that the currents of history were running very profoundly in our favor. So we had that belief. We also, on the basis of the morality felt that we could not give up. We were in exile, some people peeled off, some people went abroad to study as best they could uh, and became involved in professions. And although they might have supported the ANC and, and solidarity, uh, anti-apartheid, they weren't particularly those who stuck to their guns and would be prepared to come back and sacrifice. In the main, the communities outside were like that. They had that commitment. Um, this then meant that there was a basis for unifying our exiled communities, for being able with the correct understanding and very good leadership, Oliver Tambo, Yusuf Dadu, Joe Slovo, who inspired the rest of us, and many others, um, maintained a high degree of discipline. And uh, therefore, we were very difficult to infiltrate. At certain stages, we, we thought it was impossible for them to do so. Of course, it's always possible to compromise people and to also, and they, they became, the regime became more skillful at penetration through their agents. So we did see um, attacks uh, that I've mentioned in various parts of Africa which required collaboration uh, with the South African Defence Force and the, the infiltrators or agents they had in our midst. But the deaths that took place didn't intimidate us. It did mean that there was a de degree of paranoia that then evolves and there was some uh, heavy-handed methods of dealing with people who either were found to be agents uh, or confessed because of pressure. Um, and that's an area that we're not proud of, but you've got to see that within a context where we were uh, you know, involved in a life and death struggle. And it's also something that's been greatly exaggerated, the extents of, of the number of people um, which doesn't reach uh, uh, half a hundred people, 50 to 100 people, not that many detained either. There are a few examples of um, mutiny, and the mutiny is carrying out terrible murders of 
of ANC, AMCO people, and a reprisal against them. You know, 10 people executed in Angola after a mutiny, and these were mutineers. But we, we, we talking, you know, these are small numbers, um, and I'm, I'm saying it's the context. We were able to meet that threat, and I would say we were able to maintain, as we came through to the lifting of, of the bans outlawing the liberation movement, uh, we came out still having that moral high ground. And you could see this with successive elections from 94 through to 99 to 2004. The ANC vote under Mandela, 62% going up to nearly 70% under Mbeki in 2004. So people in the country appreciated the ANC because the ANC in the, in the struggle had greatly inspired them and the ANC had won that overwhelming support. Um, that kind of brings us in some weird, in some way to... Well, that, that brings us to the present day, if we want to talk about moral high ground. Because one could say that perhaps the ANC is in, seems to be in some kind of crisis at the moment and seems to have lost some of the moral high ground. Oh, and God, that's putting it mildly, <laughs> Nick, sure. But I'm, I'm just trying to get an understanding of how that has taken place or why that, is, why that has happened. And do you see any possibility for the ANC to regain the moral high ground or the political ground that it seems to have lost, particularly in the recent municipal elections, how that process would take place? Well, coincidentally, as we sit and speak today, we're both well aware of the fact that the NEC, National Executive Committee of the ANC, uh, has had to meet a critical crisis meeting uh, here in early February 2018 to discuss the fate of Jacob Zuma because there's the expectation that after its December 2017 conference, which elected Cyril Ramaphosa as the president, that Zuma would step down, that Ramaphosa would become president. He is president of the country, uh, but on his way to becoming president... I mean, he's sorry, he's president of the ANC on his way to becoming president of the country. And why it's so critical at the moment is in a few days' time. Um, here we are on a, Tuesday, on a Wednesday. Tuesday. Uh, Tuesday, sorry, Tuesday. In two days' time on Thursday is in Parliament's State of the Nation address. And it's going to be extremely bizarre uh, and embarrassing if Zuma attempts, as he wants to, to still hold on to presidency of the country and give that address. Um, but is that process automatic, that once the Secretary-General has been replaced, then the President must be replaced? I mean, is that how it should it does you work? You mean automatic that once the President of but the, the ANC. ANC is replaced? No, not up to now. For instance, the previous occasion in 2007, uh, Zuma became President and replaced Mbeki. Um, and Mbeki remained president for another year or so uh, and it wasn't such an acute situation as this because Mbeki might have lost favour within the ANC but he, he was still regarded with respect and had the dignity of president of the country but the ANC a grouping there that had, had won around Zuma really wanted to punish Mbeki so they sent him packing. The ANC's executive committee has that power, which they could do with Azuma, who uh, is an absolute um, disaster for South Africa, uh, given the way that uh, corruption through him has absolutely penetrated the state um, government, the ANC, a huge rot is set in. 
there's uh, this absolute um, thieving of the state funds that have taken place and all the scandals surrounding that. Um, so there's huge pressure within that ANC that Zuma must go because they can see that within just over a year, the elections in 2019 for the president of the country, that if Zuma's still there, he could hang on by his fingernails to that position uh, if he has support, and he has certain support clearly in KZN and within the national executive. He's losing that majority support clearly, um, but he could hold on. And the ANC in general moving to Ramaphosa's election victory in the ANC conference as president of the ANC sees that Zuma's the greatest liability. So there's this need to get rid of him. He's hanging on. He's created from 28 when he, well, um, 2007 when he becomes president of the ANC, this absolute rot crept in and the decline uh, at, at a huge pace so that the vote for the ANC, as you've mentioned, it dropped down to 62% from almost 70% under Mbeki to 62% for Zuma uh, in the election of 2009. Right. That's the, the uh, national. Um, and it dropped, it drops down to 54% in the local election of, two six, uh, of 2014. And in 2016, uh, the ANC loses um, the Joburg Metro, Port Elizabeth and Pretoria Metros. So they in dire straits, and it's because people are appalled at the patronage and the corruption that has taken place under Zuma. How has that taken place, you ask me? Um, well, because I mean, you've written a book now about your relationship with Jacob Zuma, so I'd just be interested. Uh, it's called A Simple Man. I'd just be interested to see how you reflect on that. Yeah, well, you know, Zuma did manifest very serious faults in his whole composition, his character in exile which we discerned. And this basically was a tribalism, a very backward, conservative attitude um, to women um, and to social aspects. Um, there was an very deep-rooted paranoia within this man relating to uh, secrecy, the needs for secrecy, which he took to extreme lengths. We saw him linked to the ethnic issue, um, but creating he... havoc within structures of the ANC because he secretly um, favoured strengthening the presence of the ANC in what we now call KwaZulu-Natal. Um, and his use of the powers he had when he became a key person in the security and intelligence structures of the ANC alarmed us, um, where people he disliked uh, suffered as a result and were were accused. Uh, uh, we saw this in MK, uh, we, and we felt unfairly. Uh, we're accused of being agents without the kind of proof that was required. Um, and yet and this we saw now being manifested back in South Africa once we came in from exile, and we saw this in terms of the proneness to corruption uh, in 
Durban to start off with, with the Shabir Sheikh trial and uh, his relationship. We saw it in the rape trial of a young woman, Fazeka Kuzwayo, who has been the young daughter of a very close comrade of his who was deceased. Um, and then this manner in which he he ruled, it was characterised by the worst excesses related to patronage, um, to crony capitalism and the like. And we saw it with the Encantler Gate issue, the greed that manifested within this man, greed linked to the lust for power, the building of Encantler, um, the excesses there on the basis of taxpayers' money. Um, his relationship with the Guptas, including the wedding that they that they had at Sun City, and where they used the airport, uh, the the, the Air, Air Force, Force Base. airport base, to bring their Bollywood guests in from India, and then worse, the kind of state capture um, phenomena that developed with his relationship with Gupta and the others, where people were appointed who were basically toadies um, in Zuma's camp in key areas like security and intelligence, in areas like energy and mining and ESCOM uh, and the SABC, all of those scandals which were exposed and which in other countries would have long seen the resignation of Zuma and these ministers. We saw the way in which his appointments to insecurity intelligence, the uh, revenue services and the prosecution authorities, the National Prosecuting Authority, how he hollowed those out to protect himself and his coterie around him from prosecution um, and so on. Now, how does this take place? And I would say that it goes directly to what I've called the Faustian Pact, that back to the time of 1994 and, well, 1990 on, where clearly the ruling white regime and the business community headed here by the top wealth, um, the Oppenheimers particularly, and the Ruperts and the Dostains, and characters like this, um, they come to inordinately influence Mandela and his top echelon. And we do a deal in which all of us, and I say mea culpa, it relates to the Communist Party as well as the ANC, and there are grounds for this, but in a sense I say it's too much of a compromise, and it's something that we can say is a deal, whereby under the edict of Mandela particularly and his influence, we accept political power and we go very light on corporate economic traditional domination of the economy, which relates to the white business elite and international capital out of Europe, Britain and America, and these huge concessions. Now, we all involved in that, but there is a reason here um, that needs to be understood. Mandela is very persuasive, and he feels that in making this change, we're gaining a huge amount. And, you know, we never dreamt of this, that in a peaceful way we would get the ruling political power, National Party, um, to basically go belly up and say, OK, we're passing uh, the, the political leadership of the country to you guys, but do go very carefully with this fragile economy and for goodness sake 
if you go for socialist change, as in the freedom charters, land and nationalisation uh, clauses, you're going to ruin the economy. The country will go into a tailspin. It'll crash. There will be more suffering and poverty and we won't get the all-important investment from abroad and there the business from Europe and Britain and America are saying the same thing and I would say in a sense frightening uh, a, a, a section of our leadership. It didn't frighten the communists or the left of the ANC but we did feel that we ought to go gently into the transition because we didn't want a civil war. We certainly wanted to placate the white five million uh, to quite a degree, and this is where Mandela's um, approach of the hand of friendship paid dividends, because there had been huge violence and further threats, and not just from the right-wing whites who were planting bombs, but out of KwaZulu-Natal with the IFP and their MPs. So that was navigated into a calmer situation uh, where the country was pacified, where we were able initially to have the calm that was needed in that transition. But in retrospect, we could see that political power alone was insufficient because we weren't then able to deal in as strenuous a way as we should have from the beginning with the poverty um, that's grown greater and the gap, despite new, huge achievements, it is a different country. Not only that African people um, and the minority groups have the vote, but there's been housing, there's been a water provision and electricity um, and, and sure. black empowerment in the economy to some degree, to a minor degree. But um, the, the extent of, of um, the, the question of poverty has grown because we didn't have the controls of the economy. We allowed... Uh, huge concessions to the corporates. Corporate tax was dropped from 56% to 28%. Uh, that's huge. It's almost 20%. If we had an increase of 3% now on the corporate tax, we could provide for free tertiary education for the poor. Another 2% on that, we would be well on our way to creating a much better welfare state and certainly a healthcare system and so on. So if you look at the concessions at that time, failure to apply a wealth tax, which an economist like Sampi to Blanche, uh, who had been a supporter of the National Party but came to see the need to deal with the question of poverty and inequality, that we failed on. Uh, we allowed these corporates to list abroad. We allowed their capital profits and so on to shift abroad. We lost huge amounts then in terms of the capital that would be required to really develop the country far more than we have in building our, our industry and creating jobs, not having to rely on investment from abroad. You know, you can itemise many more of, of these points. Um, and certainly, we started off in a mild socialist direction with the Reconstruction Development Programme, and that's where we made the advances with the new housing uh, programme, with the electricity and the water um, provisions to the poor. Um, and that gets halted to a great degree by the RDP being closed down and GEAR, which was opening South Africa up to free market essentials of the West, the Washington Consensus, um, that really prevented the kind of developments in a redistributive direction that was needed. Instead, we went along with the Thatcher-Reagan economic process. And that, I would say, opens up 
great opportunities for corruption and all the ills that go with that. Uh, and this is where Zuma gets his, his, his uh, advance, his stepping stone into being able to rip off the state enterprises in the way that has happened with him and the Guptas. And that's in this situation now, uh, to come to what is needed now, uh, that Cyril Ramaphosa is going to bring about. There are two aspects. The first, I think, if he can ride through the next year or so in terms of becoming president, dealing with the areas of the state which have been hollowed out by Zuma, which have been sold off and under the control of elements related to the looting of the state uh, and the prevention of carrying out the investigation of, of those criminals, uh, that would mean strengthening again uh, the National Directorate of Prosecution. Cyril Ramaphosa, within a month now, has to appoint a very strong person as the new head of the prosecution authority. Um, he's got to make the changes in the um, revenue service, which under Pravin Gordon in the past and Ivan Pillay had been a flagship for this country in terms of getting the revenue out of crooked elements and those who, big corporates and business who were dodging tax. Um, that's got to be reversed. The way in which, under Zuma, that was destroyed. Um, so we can come to intelligence and security apparatus where Zuma put his flunkies as ministers and heads of these important structures, the police, crime intelligence. You remember Ria Fircha, the, uh, uh, this, this female, not against that aspect, who knew nothing about policing, uh, was taken out of some yeah. res um, a human resource sector and presided over the Marikana massacre. Um, people in net who have been running these legal, these law, these intelligence institutions, those have to be um, salvaged and made strong again. And the whole question of the state, of its departments and the public enterprises from the SABC to Telcom and ESCOM, where so much revenue is derived and where we've been losing so much as per the SABC. So that whole area, I think a person like Cyril Ramaphosa, if he gets strong leadership groups under him and, and shows the will to make the changes, that that can be rescued. But then there's this issue of the economy which I've referred to. And if we're going to really make the change to get a decisive turning point in the economy, we've got to break with the enormous change that occurred in relation to the, a free market adoption. Uh, in other words, the neoliberal programs that have come to not only dominate the world, but have come to wreck economies and where we've seen deindustrialization, weakening of the state, corruption and misery and unemployment occurring. We've got to, again, strive to get back to a redistributive reconstruction development program. And can Cyril Ramaphosa do that? Because unless we do that, we won't get out of the whole, this incredible hole that's been dug that we're in at the moment. And somebody to Blanche, to end on this note, if I may, um, in a short little book he wrote in 2012, um, mentioned that the concessions that had been made to the uh, mining energy uh, composition in this country or complex, um, that these will come to haunt 
South Africa for generations to come. We won't break out of the unemployment, inequality, poverty syndrome that we're in unless we find a way, 180 degree way of changing the economic direction. And you know, one isn't necessarily talking here about raising a red flag in the barricades and going for a civil war uh, and saying it's a socialist state. We are in a different world. We've got to understand these realities. Um, but the post-war Keynesian approach of redistribution as the way to lead the creation of growth of the economy and employment had worked, and we can show it can be worked again. Ronnie, I think I'm going to leave it there, actually. I think that was... Uh, we've covered... <laughs> we've got a lot of ground. Yeah. Um, we, we sort of went through a, a brief history of the uh, struggle and have touched, I think, on a number of important issues in the post-apartheid um, in the post-apartheid era. Um, are you just... Let's finally just... Um, just ask you one closing question. Are you positive about the future of the country and, and what might be possible now um, it, with a reformed ANC? Well, I'm going to answer with the Gramsci quote, um, the pessimism of the intellect and the optimism of the will. So I, I believe and I followed this the whole my whole life, I think that people, perhaps there's a psychological factor, but it relates to one's experience and involvement um, and where you stand in terms of the f class forces in society that are constantly uh, at, um, in, in a struggle with each other, not necessarily bloody, uh, it does happen, but in a struggle for domination. And I have faith in the working class, in the masses, in the poor, uh, in the contradictions that exist. Here we are in a world, it's not 1% that owns over 50% of the wealth, it's 0.1%. The same in South Africa. That can't last. That's such a meagre minority of people with extraordinary power, of course, and wealth, but against the rest of humanity, internationally and in South Africa. So I think we're going to find a revival again of that uplift in struggle and the optimism. Um, and I keep up that optimism of the will, because if you don't, then there's no hope. So it becomes an absolute necessity to see that it's a better world is possible. Um, whether the ANC is going to be the vehicle to do this in South Africa, at the moment, it's a toss-up. At one stage, I had thought the rot had gone too far, and it's very deep. But this change, there's a sea change possibly now, um, with Ramaphosa there, and I'm not saying that everything that he stands for I agree with. And I think the worst aspect was his connection with Lundman and Marikana. But there seems to be a surge towards changing the worst of the Zuma legacy and clawing back to a position where, as I said, uh, and you don't get this very often, where you've got a second chance now. We had a wonderful chance in 1994 with Mandela. And I think that second chance is possible. It seems to be emerging. A lot depends on this leadership, which is split, of course. But I think um, support and a following moves towards the pole of power, which is Ramaphosa now. And if he's strong and has the will and that finds the backing within the ANC, that possibly can not just change the ANC for the better, but regain a, a better South Africa. So from that point of view, and I've been quite a critic of the ANC, I'm hoping that can work. But I do believe to pressurise this, that we need to see 
the formation of a stronger left voice and organization in the country, which has been occupied by the Communist Party. Uh, NUMSA, trade unions, other left forces have been emerging. Uh, and it's hard to say what's going to happen, but it's, it's very interesting and there are possibilities. Ronnie, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it and uh, all the best to you. Pleasure, Nick. I hope you enjoyed that, even perhaps if you had heard it before. It's always, uh, he's, a, he's a fascinating storyteller, as you, can, as you can hear. I struggle to sometimes get, my, get a word in, but uh, quite, a, quite a rollicking journey. Um, and again, I apologize for the repeat. Uh, people are busy. Uh, they, they, their schedules change at the last minute. And I just was just caught out this time. I usually do have a, have a backup, but uh, it's just, it was, you know, it'd been a well, whatever. Um, it will be interesting, I think, to see how the ANC reacts if it does indeed even acknowledge some of these statistics of low turnout and growing voter apathy. Um, I hope it does, um, to, to sort of force some internal reflection. It doesn't seem to be a very particularly self-aware organization these days. Um, and also the opposition, you know, the opposition parties, how they react to their failures to grow in any meaningful uh, way as well. Um, you know, this vast swathe, I think the figure has put it even 10 million now, people who didn't participate uh, in the election, eligible voters who did not for one reason or another participate in the election, either by not registering, not voting, or spoiling their ballots. And that is a massive constituency uh, crying out for some new direction, new tenor, new tone um, of, of politics in this country. So we'll, I'll definitely be looking at that over the next couple of years, I hope. Voices from SA is hosted on Audio Boom. You can also subscribe to Voices from SA via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Radio Public, Deezer, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tell your colleagues, tell your friends, tell the world. Until next time, I'm Nicholas Claude. Cheers. <laughs>